This is Talkback, 721-1290 or 1-800-568-5309. This is News Talk KGVO, AM 1290 and 98.3 FM. KGVO, Missoula's news and weather station. Good. The views and opinions expressed on Talkback are not those of the staff, management, or advertisers. Good morning, everyone. Nick Christensen here, filling in for our own Peter Christian. He is off all week on vacation with his family, so we wish Peter the best. Uh, Talk Back this morning is brought to you by Phillips Janitorial, offering residential and commercial cleaning with their powerful steam extraction method, bringing tired and dirty carpets back to life. No job is too big or small. Call 406-260-6617. Also brought to you by Y West Storage, located at the Y at 7099 Two Smokes Way. Call for pricing and availability at 406-510-0590. And by Gomer's U.S. Diesel Parts. No matter how cold, Gomer's has everything you need to make sure your rig starts every time. And Harrington Surgical Supply. Their mission remains the same, to restore confidence and comfort into your daily life. So this morning... We have a very special show. We have our friend Bob Seidenschwartz from the Montana World Affairs Council joining us, and we will kick around some open phones from now until 8.30. So we have a couple things that we kind of kicked around before the show started that we might talk about. But whatever you guys want to talk about, obviously we weren't here yesterday. Um, So anything that happened yesterday over the weekend that maybe we missed that you want to share. And then Bob has a special guest coming at 8.30. 30. Who's going to be our guest today? Yeah, we've got uh, Catherine or Kate Schilling. Um, She's right here in Missoula, Foreign Service Officer. Uh, She's going to be talking about her background and, of course, uh, her work in the Foreign Service. She also, Peter, would be uh, quite proud of this, did two tours in Iraq. Oh, wow. Um, So we've got uh, quite an accomplished uh, person coming in here to talk a little bit about the world that she works in. But, Nick, I wanted to get started off today. And uh, first, good morning, Missoula. Drive safe. Yeah, it's a little bit icy out there in a few Mm -hmm. spots. Uh, I said to you that we've had uh, attorney, well, you guys have Attorney General Knudsen on a regular basis. And he talks quite openly uh, about the fentanyl drug issue here in Montana. Mm -hmm. And I kind of get the feeling sometimes that, and, and I put myself in this category that you ask yourself, you know, how bad can it be? Mm-hmm. Uh, is this kind of an infomercial for more law enforcement? We need more funding. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm always trying to keep one, an open mind, and look for information that either gives continued validation and insight to a story, or in many cases, expands upon a story. So here's something NBC News. Oh, big one. Now, I don't know if you like, dislike NBC News, <laughs> but this is a national news organization. The article is Mexican drug cartels are targeting America's last best place. I think most of us are familiar with that That sounds familiar, yeah. So I'm just going to, I'm not going to read the full article, um, but just introduce this. On the evening of uh, March 17, 2020, a former Mexican police officer working for the Sinola cartel left his hotel room in Tijuana, walked across the U.S. border, that's a problem, right, Mm -hmm. Uh, into Southern California at 10.09. Uh, Ricardo Ramos Medina's first stop was San Diego International Airport, where he picked up a rental car. He drove to a nearby location, met a female drug mule who handed off a grocery sack filled with methamphetamine. Mm. He then set out on a much longer journey, a 16-hour drive to Montana. Medina made the trip a handful of times before, but this time it didn't go as planned. Before he reached Butte, he was pulled over by state and federal officers. 
Inside is white cheap compass. They found about two pounds of pure methamphetamine, enough authorities said to supply the entire town of towns in Montana for multiple days. The arrest, which was outlined in court papers and in interviews with investigators on the case, helped bring down a drug trafficking ring that federal prosecutors said had brought 2,000 pounds of meth and 700,000 fentanyl lace pills into Montana from Mexico over three years. Why Montana? The Montana Division of Criminal Investigation agent who was one of the lead investigators on the case. It, let's go to a second. Legal drugs have flowed into many repart, you know, remote parts of uh, the United States. But with the rise of fentanyl, cartel associates have pushed more aggressively into Montana where pills, and here's the key, can be sold for 20 times the price. Mm-hmm. They get in urban centers closer to the border, state and federal law enforcement officials said. Some areas of the state have become awash with drugs, particularly its Indian reservations, where tribal leaders say crime and overdoses are surging. On some reservations, cartel associates have formed relationship with indigenous women as a way of establishing themselves within communities to sell drugs, law enforcement officials and tribal leaders said. So this issue, as Knudsen has said for several years, is here, it's growing, and unfortunately it tends to affect the most vulnerable populations as these cartels are very strategic in terms of their behavior and what they're doing. But the key is... The sale price, as mentioned, mm-hmm. is so much more, which still makes sense then for the risk that they're taking. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, I think Catherine gave us a call. I think that's something she wants to talk about. We'll, but we are up on our first break here, so let's take that. Uh, if you'd like to talk about that, we have about 20 minutes or so left of open phones uh, with Bob and I before our guest joins us. Um, we'll look forward to your calls here right after the break. Dennis Bragg with the latest forecast from the Town Square Weather Center. Some winter weather advisories now in effect. A 40% chance of snow today and some patchy fog in the valleys. Otherwise, mostly cloudy with highs in the mid-30s. Snow likely Tuesday evening, although we're expecting less than half an inch. But there will be more on the passes and some gusty winds. Snow showers and some windy conditions persisting into Wednesday with highs around 30. Lows dipping below 20. There's a better chance of accumulating snow on Wednesday night into Thursday with 1 to 2 inches possible in the valleys. All right. Welcome back to Talk Back. Nick Christensen here again, filling in for Peter Christian, who is on vacation the rest of the week. But we're still going to have Talk Back. Thanks to Bob. He's going to be on today as well as Thursday. Uh, Let's not waste any more open phones time because it's pretty short. We have Catherine on the line. Uh, Catherine, what's your comment or question? Yeah, um, I was going to actually I was going to bring up this uh, what Bob just brought up. Because um, I ran across an article in the New York Post uh, a few days ago about this. I don't know if I sent it to you or not, but um, federal prosecutors brought said that uh, at least 2,000 pounds of meth and 700,000 fent- fentanyl-laced pills have poured into Montana from Mexico over the last three years. It's the Sinaloa cartel. Correct. And, um, yeah. And the specifically on the Blackfoot Reservation, Blackfeet Reservation, um, what they do, what the uh, the cartels do, is they target the uh, <clears throat> the women, excuse me, of the uh, tribe, and they lure them into becoming uh, dealers by uh, getting them uh, in addict, addicted, and then they are indebted to the uh, to the cartels. So. Um, 
this is uh, this is just really horrible. Well, you um, know, and it's been going in for a while, huh? Uh, Catherine, this is a, a a strategy that is not just unique to the cartels. Uh, it, when one is right. seeking to gain leverage or advantage, especially on the illegal side of the world, you seek out the most vulnerable. You, you look for the yep. people that right. um, are either economically or in many other ways, you know, more easy prey. It's like the lion looking for the gazelle out mm-hmm. on the uh, on the plane. So uh, th- there's nothing new about this except, of course, this is now in our backyard. It's here. Right. It's it's tragic in terms of the effect upon particularly the reservation and, and these vulnerable populations. So, you know, this this is all part and parcel of a multitude of issues that start with, you know, dislocation, the gangs in Central America, moving up to your borders, not having control, not having the infrastructure. It's just a cascading effect. And I think we've been trying to talk about this and successfully for quite some time on this show with the experts and people, including our audience. Well, you know, I've also been wondering, you know, there's been uh, quite a number of uh, missing women from reservations. I'm wondering if that's a uh, something that is maybe uh, attached to this problem? Uh, Catherine, I couldn't speak to that, but it's been going on for, uh, that's been an issue that I think has been around for quite some time. I'm sure this just exacerbates that issue, uh, especially given the consequences of the drug trade and what we know goes along with it. So, Catherine, any other thoughts or comments on this? Um, let's see. I don't know how many, um, let's see. I don't know how many, uh, deaths. I guess it's a Montana's opioid overdose death has almost tripled. I can, I can give you those um, numbers, uh, Catherine. Actually, I did a story in November. Um, so I don't know the numbers since then, but, uh, fentanyl link deaths have been on the rise in Montana last year, 2023. The state crime lab reported 77 overdose deaths mm-hmm. involving just fentanyl which is a 1,750% increase from 2017. In 2017, there were just four. So, yeah, obviously a big jump there. Absolutely disgusting. The other thing that I wanted to bring up was, though, that the uh, situation between tribal elders, tribal leaders, and tribal police and local law enforcement is kind of difficult because there um, are restrictions on local in law enforcement operating on the tribal lands. So I don't know how, if, if that's going to work itself out too. So anyway, that's uh, basically all I've got. All right. Thanks, Catherine. Uh, let's see. Let's actually take our break now so that Dave has plenty of time to share his thoughts and ask his question. Uh, we got about ooh, nine minutes or so left of open phone. So if you want to talk about this topic or anything else that's going on in your world, uh, give us a call, and then uh, our guest will be joining us at 8.30. We'll talk to you guys soon. All right, crew, let's get her dug. Honey, you want to give me a hand? I'm planting that tree, remember? No matter how large or small your digging project may be, no matter how urban or rural, you must always call 811 before any digging project. 811 is our national one-call number, alerting your local utility companies to come out and mark any lines they have near your dig site. 
you must call 811 at least two to three business days before any digging project so you can avoid hitting our essential buried utilities. This includes natural gas and petroleum pipelines, electric, communication cables, and water and sewer lines. So before you do this or this, make sure you do this. For digging projects big or small, make the call to 811. Brought to you by Common Ground Alliance. Chris Domine is a husband and a father. Chris is an athlete. Chris is even an Iron Man. But 10 years ago, Chris was facing a very different story because his kidneys were failing. Basically, the doctor said, if you don't get a kidney transplant and if you don't do dialysis, you, you are going to die. Fortunately, Chris received a second chance at life, made possible by an organ donor. You know, your well-being changes from loss of hope to hope to better times ahead. More than 100 million people in America are registered organ, eye, and tissue donors. People of every age and ethnicity because they believe it's the right thing to do. Imagine what you can make possible by leaving behind the gift of life. Learn more and sign up as an organ, eye, and tissue donor. Go to organdonor.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. All right, we are back on TalkBack. Uh, Nick Christensen here again filling in for Peter. Uh, for those of you that just tuned in, Peter is going to be out all week. He is on vacation, so we wish him the best. Uh, let's get back to open phones here. Um, Dave, you're up. What's going on? Yeah, I was going to talk about immigration laws, but, but since we have such short time, uh, I'll talk about drugs. Uh, you know, if there's a demand, there will be a supply. Uh, it's sad to say that that it, it, supply will be there if people want it. And I was watching a, a little episode on TV, and, and a bunch of men drove a speedboat up onto the beach. I assume it was California. They jumped out. They left the what, the $20,000 boat behind and um, abandoned it, and they took off with with a whole lot more money worth of drugs. So I, I have my doubts that that border closing, if, you, if that's even possible, and I'll talk about it in the future, um, would stop the drugs from coming in because it's, it's, they'll find a way. Where there's a will, there's a way. There's Canada, there's all the beach, they all the 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 open seas for them to come in I, until we deal with the demand. I, I think we're not going to get anywhere. Yeah. But you, you do have to make their ways harder, right? Yeah. There's always going to be a will and a way, but if you make it easier and don't, you know, address the problem at least a little bit, it's just going to get worse. Oh, that's true. And, and we will, I'll be willing to discuss the immigration laws and, and what it, what it would take to really lock down the bor the border, and if it's even legal to do, and we'll uh, we'll discuss that issue in the future. Okay, sounds good. Thanks, Dave. Yep. Anything to add, Bob? Before Marilyn? Or? Uh, no, I mean Dave's just citing something that is a truism, and, and the economics of the world work in an irrefutable way. And he's right, supply and demand. Mm -hmm. But we also recognize that cartels are targeting the reservations, which have also some unique and unfortunate economic and social issues, which makes it more vulnerable. So it's not one solution. Mm -hmm. It's a combination of many. Uh, I, I mentioned to you watching this series on Netflix, uh, Narcos. Oh, yeah. And in the 1970s, and I remember this quite well, 
Coke was exploding across the United States. Heck, you don't sell it unless there's a market somewhere, right? So it's uh, this always has to be part of the solution. It's not just one thing that can be done that ends the problem. I agree. Uh, let's get Marilyn on. Uh, Marilyn, go ahead. You're on Talkback. Good morning. morning. So a while back, I don't remember who it was. I think it might have been Austin Knutson. It's so far back in my notes, I'm not willing to grab it right quite yet. But he said that whoever it was said that, I think he said, the reservation is willing to pay $100 a pill for whatever the pill was at that time, whereas the cartels could only get $10 a pill from the average other person. So my question at that time was, well, okay, we are always being told they don't, you know, their poverty up there, such victims and everything. Why do they have more money to spend for their drugs than the average other guy that wants to buy drugs? So what, what, do you, Marilyn, what are you implying when you, when, you, when you phrase it in that manner? I'm implying that maybe we need to stop enabling the that population. And, and in what manner would you do that as opposed to just saying we need stop to stop the enabling them? That I, maybe for once and all, all, let them own their own property. Let them become, you know, stop giving them money. They claim to be sovereign. Let's cause them to be sovereign. Right. Okay. Okay. Thank, thank you, Marilyn. Stop enabling them. They've evidently got money to buy drugs, so I'm sorry that they are that population that, you know, wants to be addicted, but, you know, spend their money on things. It, they remind me of Hamas that didn't build up their city, you know, to be a profitable and, you know, economic um, powerhouse, whatever. Instead, they built underground tunnels with the finances that they could have used to right. for their citizens, but... There you go. All right. Thanks, Marilyn. Marilyn thank you. Uh, we have uh, Susan on. Uh, Susan, go ahead. Oh, yeah, yeah. Can't go in there. Susan, you're on. <laughs> oh, hey. Hey, you're on Talkback. I am actually calling to just say that we did not have the problems we're having now three years ago. There are laws well on the books to control the the border. They were being enforced three years ago. They're not being enforced now. And we need to go back to where we definitely strongly enforce the laws that are on the books. Mayorka and Joe Biden have a wide open border policy. Um, yes, we do have drugs coming in, but there are ways that can be uh, they, they can be turned back and I truly support Austin Knutson and 24 other governors that are sending National Guard down to the border and I hope that there, there's going to be a change of guard this year to stop this ridiculous flow and I think we need to just accept the fact that the laws are there to be enforced, and furthermore, a president has a lot of power that can go on ahead and, and get the job done. 
Biden does not need any more laws. He does not need any more permission to do what needs to be done. He just doesn't want to do it. And that's that's the way it is. All right. Thanks, Susan. Appreciate the call. All right. Well, Nick, there you go. There you go. Just how it is. Yeah. Um, I I would say it's just in my humble opinion, maybe a little bit more nuanced, Uh, even during Trump's, you know, with uh, locking things down with the health care, you know, covid. Please understand there were still people coming across the border. Oh, yeah. And those numbers were not small. It's not comparable, maybe accurately to today, but um, to make these kind of sometimes clear delineations, I think it's a bit more nuanced. And uh, in the future, folks, you know, I've got um, uh, folks that would be glad to come on this show to speak to exactly these issues. So I think that'd be a great idea. Yeah, the, the whole purpose is opinions. We, we respect that. But I think sometimes getting down to some some information that may be a little bit different than what you think it is. Because yeah, you're not there. I'm not there. Exactly. You know, we're, we're just That's going right. off a of word of mouth from other people, right? right. So and you you got to trust whatever source that information's coming from. And, so. and we have our biases about who we may believe is going to come in with uh, the white horse and the sword and save <laughs> us. And often that's not the case. Uh, there no. may be improvements. Uh, but there's a lot that uh, Dave has alluded to over the years and many others. There's a legal system that um, will have to change. Thank you, guys. We yeah. got a break coming up, and our guest, who I'm going to go out and make sure we can greet her properly. Oh, she's in studio. Yes. Oh, here I am thinking she's on the phone. No, no, no shame no. on me. All right, yeah, let's uh, let's take that break here, and hopefully uh, we will have our guest in the studio when we come back. Dennis Bragg with the latest forecast from the Town Square Weather Center. Some winter weather advisories now in effect. A 40% chance of snow today and some patchy fog in the valleys. Otherwise, mostly cloudy with highs in the mid-30s. Snow likely Tuesday evening, although we're expecting less than half an inch. But there will be more on the passes and some gusty winds. Snow showers and some windy conditions persisting into Wednesday with highs around 30, lows dipping below 20. There's a better chance of accumulating snow on Wednesday night into Thursday with 1 to 2 inches possible in the valleys. All right, we are back on Talkback. Nick Christensen here filling in for Peter, who is on vacation all week. And we have a very special guest in studio. Uh, you were already hearing from our friend Bob Seidenschwartz. We're now shifting gears from open phones to our Montana World Affairs Council portion of the show. And uh, Bob, if you could introduce our guests, that'd be great. Yeah, I'd be happy to. We have uh, Catherine Kate Schilling who is joining us here today. And uh, um, she's got a interesting and fascinating background. So I'm going to let her introduce herself and talk a little bit about how did she come to be here with us today. And then, of course, we will introduce our topic and uh, discussion. So, uh, folks, uh, let's welcome Kate Schilling. Kate, welcome. good Kate. to see you. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Um, so my name is Kate Schilling. I work as a foreign service officer in the U.S. Department of State. So normally what that means is that I am working in an embassy overseas. Uh, But right now I am working a domestic tour with an office based at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. Okay. And I had asked you uh, a little bit about, are you um, Missoula born and raised? I am not. So I was born and raised on the East Coast in a suburb outside Washington, D.C., But my mother's side of the family is from Montana, and growing up, we would always come back for family reunions. We'd stay at Fairmont Hot Springs, and I always loved coming here, and it was a part of the country that I really enjoyed. Where were your folks from in Montana? 
on your my, mom's side. My mom's parents were from Anaconda. Oh, nice. So uh, we have a connection here. Oh, okay. uh, and, and this will be uh, I'll, I'll, my wife is Kate or Katie, and her dad grew up in Anaconda, the Sullivans and the Gallaghers. What a small world! I know. So I'm sure if she was here, she'd pull out the book and she'd be getting your entire family history right here. But uh, when as soon as you said, you know, uh, Fairmount Hot Springs, I'm going. Wonder if this is Anaconda. So, one of the things I love so much about Montana is we're so connected here. All you have to do is say you're from somewhere, and the whole story just grows. Well, you got to know somebody. Um, it, it's just like we were back. My son was graduating on Georgetown, mm -hmm. and we're back at his graduation. We get on this elevator, and there's a family there, and they're having celebration. Their daughter's graduating as well. Oh, daughter's graduating from Georgetown. What school did she go to? Where are you guys from? Anaconda. <laughs> and that just started off uh, a whole series of people that we know. Turns out uh, the Ryan family. Mm -hmm. And I know Paul quite well, play ball and with and against him. So it's just, wow. it's what Montana is kind of about. So, all right, we've got yes. you established here as a Montanan. Great. Absolutely. And that is always one of the first questions that people ask me. Yeah. And when you're in Washington, D.C., people ask you to get like a geographic area, like, oh, you're from this state or you're from the Midwest right. or you're from right. the West Coast. And people just kind of want to understand in a big picture where you're from. But when they ask you in Montana, it's a very specific question. And it usually leads to like uh, a backstory with some connections. Mm -hmm. And the stories just grow. Yes. <laughs> All right. So you've you got family here. You grew up on the East Coast. Um, and you have, Nick and I were just asking, kind of how did you come to here? And you mentioned Dina Mansour. Mm -hmm. And then there's Gillian Glaze. Mm -hmm. And, of course, there's a dozen stories with Dina and Gillian, which we'll get to. But how did you meet them? So it started off with an article that Dina wrote for um, a publication in the State Department. It's, it's like a monthly magazine that goes out. And it goes out to embassies around the world, and it goes out to Foreign Service officers. And it was about the work she was doing here at the University of Montana. Right. Right. Um, and an old supervisor of mine said, okay, look at this. It's something about Montana. You should reach out to this sure. woman. Okay. So you, you reach out to Dina and then you mentioned that there was a program here that were you a part of the program in terms of as a speaker or it was just kind of the introduction that you had through Dina? It was just the introduction I okay. had through Dina, but I'm certainly hoping to get involved with the University of Montana right. and, you know, talk about the Foreign Service as a career opportunity or working overseas right. and stuff like that. Okay. And uh, I, I just have to mention, because I know uh, uh, Peter, who is on vacation, uh, is always immensely, as he should be proud of people that have served in our military. You served in the military. In fact, you did two tours. In yes, Iraq. That's correct. Uh, so, just a, a little bit of background on what was the capacity of which you were working? How did that come to be? And thank you for the service. Yes, thank you. Oh, thank you. So, um, I was in the Marine Corps as a logistics officer. Um, I was based out of Camp Pendleton, California, and I did two tours in Iraq. Um, both of those tours were logistics focused. All right. To, uh, help me understand logistics in what capacity? Sure. So on my first tour, I was working convoys um, and I was based out of Al-Assad, which was a base in uh, western Iraq. And mm -hmm. on my second tour, I was very close to uh, Fallujah um, and I was working as an operations officer. And I also did some work with um, outreach to local women in that area. Okay. So we're going to go to a break here. 
Mm-hmm. And when we come back, we'll continue this conversation and welcome. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, our phone number is 721-1290. If you want to join in on the conversation, we're kind of just uh, kicking things off here, but we will be back right after this break. Hi, it's Steve Mann. All right, we are back on TalkBack. Nick Christensen here. We're just starting our conversation, uh, Bob and Katie here in studio. And, uh, Bob, I know that you kind of wanted to uh, take things in a different direction here. Go right yeah, ahead. Uh, yes. Um, you know, you served in the military. Mm-hmm. Everybody has a story in terms of experience and background leads to. And sometimes it's purposeful. Other times it's just happenstance. So where did your life take a turn after leaving the military? And I'm always interested in... Were there people that were particularly mentors to you or said, hey, Kate, you know, here's the work that you've done. This is something that based on conversations and interest may be something you wish to pursue. Yeah. So I would say there were two things that led me to the Foreign Service. Uh, The first thing was on my second tour in Iraq. Like I said, I was working with some local women in the Fallujah area and I didn't speak their language. They didn't speak my language. And so we were working with an interpreter. And I noticed that I was I was thinking to myself, hmm, this is probably like some outreach and some one-on-one engagement that should be done by <clears throat> a person that speaks their language and understands their culture and has a bit more context. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, okay, um, what's the right forum for that? Uh, so that kind of led me on the path to the State Department. Um, And then the second thing was my job with the American Red Cross. So after the military, um, I went to work for the American Red Cross at their national headquarters in Washington, D.C. So there are Red Cross chapters all across the United States, um, but I was working for the headquarters, so kind of the, the overall... They're in D.C., as you mentioned, right? Okay. Yep, but I believe there is, you know, I think we have a Red Cross chapter here in Missoula, Montana, Mm -hmm. right? Right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so working in, like, crisis response and disaster services was something I really enjoyed. And then I kind of wanted to combine those two things. And so that is how I ended up at the State Department. And you mentioned something that has always struck me, no matter what the situation may be it's understanding the people and the culture that you're working with and that applies right here in the united states as well and you could probably speak to that in terms of the red cross when we went into iraq if i remember correctly and please correct me if i'm wrong here we had very few people in the military that spoke arabic and we had fewer people that understood the culture and the nuances so Is this something that being in the foreign service is a part of the roles and responsibilities in the countries that you're located in? So foreign service officers, foreign service officers are expected to speak the language of the country that they're serving in. So the way your career works is um, before you go to an overseas post, which is usually a two to three year job, you will go to our language school beforehand, which is located in Virginia, right outside Washington, D.C., And depending on the language, um, some languages take a really long time to learn. I'm thinking uh, Arabic, Chinese, Japanese, Korean. I think those are like two years of learning a language. Um, I've learned Spanish, so that was definitely a shorter process. Uh, I don't remember off the top of my head exactly how long it took, but um, it was less than a year. And then you go overseas and serve in that country uh, 
and speak the language and read the language and hopefully write the language a bit. So when you're in these countries, how long is your post time? So between two and three years. It uh, depends on the job you're holding, but usually three years is the maximum. And, and when, we're, when we're looking at a post, I'm fascinated and interested in how much do you get uh, out into the Native culture? How and what does it take to develop the relationships? Because you're not, I'm assuming, isolated in your compound, that it's critical to develop working and living relationships with the people for where you're stationed. Yeah, absolutely. That is your job as a diplomat to go out there and engage and represent the United States. So the level of engagement and the type of engagement really depends on the type of job that you have at the embassy. Um, so I'll give you a couple quick examples. So we have uh, political and economic officers whose job it is to focus on the politics or economics of that country. You know, they will have people that they work with at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, or they will have different contacts in that government. And so they will have a lot of interface and interaction with government officials. We also have public diplomacy officers whose job is to do things like this. They engage with the media. They run social media accounts. So they are out there. They're engaging a lot with a wide variety of people across a lot of different media platforms. Uh, my specialty is consular. So we are the ones that issue visas. So we're interviewing and issuing visas to people. Mm -hmm. um, we are also helping Americans abroad, right? So that's births, deaths, adoptions. You lost your passport. You land in jail or the hospital or there's a death overseas. We're working with you on that. So that is a combination of interviewing local people in the local language, working with Americans, most of the time in English, but mm -hmm. it depends on where you are. Um, and working with officials in that country. You know, sometimes it's the police, sometimes it's your contacts at like the airport or the customs official. Um, and then we also have management officers. And those are the people whose job it is to run the embassy, right? They, they hold the leases, they keep the lights on, they make sure we have all the services and contracts that we need. So they're interacting with um, a smaller population of the public. However, when you are a diplomat working overseas, you are a diplomat 24-7. So kind of many interactions that you have, even if they're not part of your official work day, right. it can be an interaction. Are so, you required to do a certain number of posts? I mean, because you mentioned three years, but uh, I mean, is the time between posts or how does a timeline work basically? So, I mean, every career is different. Mm -hmm. Um there are overseas jobs and then there are jobs in Washington, D.C. at our headquarters. Um, and oftentimes the D.C. jobs, like they would not require training like the language training I just spoke about, right? So like in my career, I took Spanish. I went overseas to Mexico. I worked in Spanish there. From there, I went to Bogota, Colombia. I didn't require any additional training. I already had the language. I'd already done the consular work. I came back to DC and worked a headquarters job um, that I, I didn't have like a big training requirement at the front end like language. So it really depends. Um, but then, you know, I had colleagues who, when I was halfway through my Mexico tour, they were wrapping up their first language. Mm. So everyone's career is very different. 
Interesting. We're, yeah, we're up against our first break here. We have Joe that's been waiting on the line. We'll get to his call when we get back from this break. We're just kind of starting our conversation here. Uh, we're going to be talking with Katie all the way through 10 o'clock. So if you have a question you want to get in the queue, phone number is 721-1290. We would love to hear from you. Dennis Bragg with the latest forecast from the Town Square Weather Center. Some winter weather advisories now in effect. A 40% chance of snow today and some patchy fog in the valleys. Otherwise, mostly cloudy with highs in the mid-30s. Snow likely Tuesday evening, although we're expecting less than half an inch. But there will be more on the passes and some gusty winds. Snow showers and some windy conditions persisting into Wednesday with highs around 30. Lows dipping below 20. There's a better chance of accumulating snow on Wednesday night into Thursday with 1 to 2 inches possible. All right, we are back on Talkback. Nick Christensen here filling in for Peter, who is on vacation this week. We are still going to have Talkback the rest of the week. Uh, and we have Joe that's waiting on the line uh, to visit with us. Joe, what's uh, your question or comment for our guest, Katie? Thank you for having me. I uh, was curious. There's a lot of criticism that uh, the hiring practices of uh, the federal government have moved away from uh, meritocracy is the term that like, people like to use. And uh, so critical race theory is one uh, allegation that goes on, you know, with, with respect to your sexual orientation or your race or your sex, that the hiring practices are leaning in that direction. It's, do you have any comments on that? Or I'm not going to mention any names. Uh, that's personal opinion. So, but what, what's your thoughts on that? Thanks, Joe. Is that going on or, yeah. Hey, Joe, thanks for your question. So I can't speak to the federal government across the board about what they're doing. What I can tell you is the process that I went through to get into the foreign service. So it's definitely a longer process. Um, you start off, well, it may have changed in the 10 plus years since I did it, but when I applied, I started off with um, an online exam and then you submitted some essays in response to some questions. Uh, if you passed through that, the next step was um, an in-person interview and that was a very long process. It was a day long process um, where you went through kind of a couple of different scenarios. Um, if you passed that, uh, then you were invited to join the Foreign Service. So it was a process that took me probably about a year in total. Um, so it's obviously something that we take very seriously and put a lot of time and effort and thought into. Thank you. Thanks, Joe. So, so Katie, along those lines and, and acknowledging Joe's question, as you alluded to, over 10 years, there may have been some changes in Foreign Service in terms of looking for certain groups of people, uh, for bringing them into the service, but hard to say as you uh, uh, initiate, you know, as you alluded to. But with the test itself, I've heard the test is very difficult. Uh, give us a little insight as to what that test looked like. And then also, you've got to have some writing skills, too. If you're going to sit down and have to do essay questions, um, I'm not guessing they had chat GBT or spell check back when you were doing this or still could do that today. Yes, ChatGPT was not around when I applied. So my comment on the difference was actually like the format of the exam may have changed in the 10 plus years since I've taken it. Um, so I can just say very generally like, yes, it is a competitive exam. Um, 
you can find out more information if you just Google foreign service officer exam. The whole process is laid out for you. Obviously, I have not looked into that in a while, but I think there's some pretty clear information out there for anyone who's interested. So what kind of background, uh, understanding again, this was several years ago, what kind of background would you have to be prepared for to take this uh, part of the test? Well, so like you said, um, good writing skills are a part of it, right? That's a, that's a big component of our job. And being a good communicator is also a part of our job, right? We are looking for people who are able to go overseas and represent America abroad in a wide variety of contexts and locations. When you sign up, you, you agree to be worldwide available. So I am telling the Department of State, yes, you can send me to any country around the world and I can show up there and represent U.S. interests abroad. So uh, I, I go back to the test part requirements, geopolitical background and interest, history of the U.S., constitutional issues. What are those protocols that are critical for somebody if they're going to pass this test? Mm, that's a good question. You know, it has been so long. I don't really remember. Um, I do remember there was kind of a, a wide variety of knowledge they were asking you about, but um, I would have to go back and look at the requirements to understand what like what, what the specifics right. are. Uh, suffice to say, you better be somewhat proficient and know that Miami is in Florida <laughs> or you're not going to pass the test probably. I, I, what I tell people is that you should approach it like you approach um, a standardized exam, like the SATs or the ACTs, right? It is an exam. It is a process. So you, you should approach it in a way that you would approach any standardized exam. Gotcha. We, we, uh, break yeah, here. we have our hard break coming up here in about 30 seconds or so. I just want to say thanks to all our callers so far. We actually have Jeff waiting on the line that we'll get to Jeff's call uh, when we get back here from the break. Again, Nick Christensen here filling in for Peter Christian, who is on vacation. I want to thank Bob and Katie. This first hour kind of flew by, but we have a whole other hour left. So if you'd like to get in on the conversation, phone number is 721-1290. We would love to hear from you. And yeah, we will be back right after this top of the hour break. This is Talkback, 721-1290 or 1-800-568-5309. This is News Talk KGVO, AM 1290 and 98.3 FM. KGVO, Missoula's news and weather station. The views and opinions expressed on Talkback are not those of the staff, management, or advertisers. You want the best. Dennis Bragg with the latest forecast from the Town Square Weather Center. Some winter weather advisories now in effect. A 40% chance of snow today in some patchy fog in the valleys. Otherwise, mostly cloudy with highs in the mid-30s. Snow likely Tuesday evening, although we're expecting less than half an inch. But there will be more on the passes and some gusty winds. Snow showers and some windy conditions persisting into Wednesday with highs around 30. Lows dipping below 20. There's a better chance of accumulating snow on Wednesday night into Thursday with 1 to 2 inches possible in the valleys. All right, we are back on TalkBack. TalkBack this Tuesday is brought to you by Phillips Janitorial, offering residential and commercial cleaning with their powerful steam extraction method. No job is too big or small. Call 406-260-6617. Also by YWest Storage. Call for pricing and availability at 406-510-0590. YWest, making room for you. Also by Gomer's U.S. Diesel Parts. Uh, Gomer's U.S. Diesel Parts and Service in Missoula at Palmer and West Broadway. And by Harrington Surgical Supply. 
appointments or uh, appointments are preferred for mastectomy fittings and custom compressions, but walk-ins are welcome. So let's continue our conversation here with Kate. Uh, she's a foreign service officer and our friend Bob Seidenschwartz from the Montana World Affairs Council. Jeff has been waiting on the line. So let's get Jeff's call. Uh, Jeff, what's going on? Hey, good morning, uh, Semper Fi. Oh, good morning, Semper Fi, Jeff. <laughs> yeah, um, a lot of folks don't realize um, the privilege of service outside and have no awareness of what life outside the United States is like. Um, my experience was going to Turkey mm -hmm. uh, as a 20-year-old, and uh, that was eye-opening. Uh, I learned to appreciate things like electricity and running water. Mm -hmm. And so um, in your service, particularly in the Arab world where um, women uh, are uh, not held to the same, uh, the same esteem as men are, generally speaking, um, there, there's a general question there. What, what, what's been your experience? What opened your eyes? in terms of, uh, of service in Iraq and then, and then later, uh, later service as well. And uh, what do you think the one thing we could do in Iraq to actually, um, or even any country, I, I, I worked with a guy uh, who was doing logistic support for, for, uh, in Iraq uh, for Russian equipment. He's trying to get uh, hardware uh, replacements for Russian equipment. And the Iraqi guy he worked with, he says, if you could just get our air conditioning working, my wife would be happy and I would have peace at home. So, I mean, you know, sometimes it's just as simple as things like that. Um, but what's your experience, particularly, you know, uh, in serving as a woman over in the Middle East? Yeah, thanks, Jeff. That is a very big, broad question. Um, it was certainly an experience. It really taught me that people really do live their lives all different ways. Um, one kind of like sticking point for me was that it is so easy to just stay in places where English is the language, right? And a lot of airports around the world, like people, there are still signs in English. You can usually get by with it. There's usually always, you know, one or two other people around that can help you translate or get by. And it was really eye-opening for me to realize that, oh no, like sometimes you really do need to adapt yourself to what is going on in the country that you're in. And you should not assume that you can just show up somewhere and plug in as an English speaking person and you know this, the systems will adapt to you or somebody will show up that speaks English. And that was something that was it's just a hard lesson to unlearn when that is your, that's your baseline assumption, right? And it, it's just a very different way of approaching the world and looking at the world. So, uh, Jeff, uh, do you have some additional uh, questions or thoughts uh, for Kate? No, it's just, uh, I, I, my, my son-in-law was a uh, air attaché. Just, he just finished up an air attaché job in, uh, in Egypt at the embassy there, so it kind of uh, visiting brought home to me that yeah, what you said the uh, the, the difference in the culture. But I just I just think most Americans don't realize how good we have it and what the what life in a third world really is. My son my son served in Haiti for a couple of months in the army, and uh, 
it opened his eyes, just like serving in Turkey opened mine. And and I was that's kind of what I was going for is what's the what's the eye opening experiences that you've had. So Jeff, that's a couple of great Thanks, questions, Jeff. and I want to ask Kate from the standpoint if you were speaking to a group of students right now here in Missoula, and you're talking exactly about this issue. Share with us some of your insights and experiences of how folks in these countries look at America, how they see us through what type of prism. Yeah, so, I mean, it's not universal. Every country has a different experience with America or thoughts about it. But I would say, generally speaking, um, kind of no matter what job I've held, I can show up places and they will think like me personally, I am making all the decisions for the US government, right? Like I'm the one controlling the money and telling the planes where to fly and making these decisions. And I mean, (laughs) I do not hold that power. You are very powerful, Kate. (laughs) Right. Um, So, right, sometimes it's, you know, you have to set expectations and help people understand who you are and what your job is there and why you're there. And yes, I am an American, but I am not like the the final and ultimate decider of all things related to America. But there's something interesting about that, which is where does that assumption and belief come from in the first place? I mean, uh, where are people getting their information from that they should extrapolate that to what you just said? Right. Yeah. And I mean, I, that would be a question for them, but I would assume that, you know, kind of pop culture in in general is it's very prevalent and it's popular around the world. I believe, I'm not sure others can correct me, but I believe like the Fast and the Furious is like the most popular worldwide American movie. So that might, those kind of products might be where people are pulling ideas from. It might be where, how, where and how they learn English. And this is what is so interesting and intriguing to me that our reach is immense. And a lot of it comes from media. And we've had many a guest in conversation that people living almost anywhere now with the ability to get information and the internet and all that it connects to, um, a lot's being shared out there, but often there's no context to what's being shared. So we assume and make projections about what we think Americans are, as well as what we think other countries may be as well. Right. I am not a member of the Fast and Furious. By <laughs> you don't arms. have a little no. short car that makes wheelies. <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> well, it's, uh, this is all very interesting to me in terms of how do we communicate that here? Because what, what do we do to get better understanding? How do we communicate better with our own citizens about what our responsibilities are when we go overseas? So I know we have another caller as yeah, well, Nick. Yeah, well, Marilyn's back uh, to ask Kate a question. And Marilyn, yeah, what's your uh, question or, or comment for our guest, Kate? Hi, Kate. Um, you sound like a nice lady, and this is not meant to you know hold any disrespect or push back to anything you're saying, but uh, here a while back, Great talk show host Mark Levin was letting us know about a Iranian spy ring within the State Department. And it's always interesting to me. I mean, I'm pretty old, and the State Department has, well, I mean, we've, you know, believed that the State Department is not necessarily America first for um, the most part. And I know, how many employees work there? Um, that's not, I have another question after that, but how many employees at the State Department? Do you know? Yeah, so there are 
employees that work in our embassies overseas. There are employees that are D.C.-based. And then there are what we call um, locally employed staff. Those are people that are nationals of and live and work in overseas countries and work to support our embassies. So you have about 13,000 foreign service. So those are the people that work overseas. About 11,000 D.C.-based civil service employees and then 45,000 locally employed staff around the world. And we have more than 270 diplomatic missions around the world. Yeah. So, um, you know, I'm sure there is some good vetting going on. Evidently, you had that. But how does it happen that... This, these people were with the IRGC, which was a military wing of uh, of Iran, and they worked directly for Blinken at the State Department. They recently were put on leave and moved out before the Republicans could come after them with a Marilyn, this, with this investigation. Is... So I just am curious how that happens, and we need to be aware of that and bless you for your good work and i hope there's more of you than there are of them um yeah people need to just be aware though that there is crime and corruption within our government agencies and we need to tell it and root it out and put good people in there so we're all safe i mean safe is the big word these days for the left which is not making us safer but so marilyn let's let kate address a couple of your good questions here okay thanks thanks yeah so marilyn i wanted to address where you said um we're not serving america first and that's just not true myself and all my colleagues around the world it is our job to represent you and all americans abroad that is why we have embassies overseas that is what we do Our official motto says that we protect and promote U.S. security, prosperity, and democratic values. And in my job in consular affairs, so that's visas, passports, and services to American citizens, we are there to serve the interests of Americans abroad, right? So that is births, adoptions, medical emergencies if you land in the hospital, if an American passes away overseas, if they get arrested and put in jail, or if there is a natural disaster, we are there on the front lines helping you. We are serving in those embassies overseas and conducting jail visits. So absolutely, we do represent America and we do care. Perfect. Thank you. We got about three minutes, Bob, before our break. Yeah, um, you know, I there's something that over the years would be probably helpful for people to understand. When you're an elected official, you have a two, four year term. Government's changed. That's just a fact of our life. You as a State Department of Foreign Services, these are longer in more perpetuity in terms of, and please correct me if I'm wrong, organizationally as well as careers. So people being people, we are, meaning what you're doing, you are serving the U.S. citizens first and foremost. But it's not uncommon that sometimes you can see tensions between different organizations, including with administrations at times, where State Department officials are saying, look, I got to deal with these folks after you guys are gone. Your policies that you're putting in place right now could be problematic for the relations we built up and all the things that go with it. So it's not unheard of that these are situations that do and inevitably do arise. So a foreign service career is, it's like a a 20 plus year career, right? And so you, you will serve across a variety of 
locations and administrations, like you mentioned, they can switch every four years or sometimes every eight years. And so our job is to represent America abroad. And the policies are set at the very tippy top and we implement them. Right. And that's your job. Right. So this is one of the reasons that we have you on the show here today is I think it's so important for us as Americans to understand what are the different institutions out there that do represent us? What's their roles and responsibilities? So we're going to be coming up to a break, but I want to talk a little bit about passports. Oh, good. I, I've, got, I, I've got a wonderful friend that was about to be taking a trip to Mexico with his wife. and <laughs> No names. <man>. No names. <laughs> opens up his passport and his wife's like, are you kidding? It's expired. And we're supposed to leave in a couple of days, airlines, uh, plans, all that goes with it. What does he do? Where does he go? So, um, Nick, how close are we yeah, to the well, next break let, here? Let's take our break now, and then yeah. we'll talk some passports, and then we'll get Harry's call uh, right after that. Harry's on the line. Um, yeah, still plenty of time left here with Kate. We got about 40 minutes. She's a Foreign Service officer, so if you have a question... Uh, anything that's on top of your mind, give us a call. Phone number is 721-1290. We will be back right after this break. We are back on TalkBack. Nick Christensen here filling in for Peter, who's going to be on vacation all week. Uh, he will be back on Monday, but we're still going to have TalkBack uh, the remainder of the week. Uh, this morning, we're talking with Bob Seidenschwartz from the Montana World Affairs Council and Kate. She's a foreign service officer. And we just teased it before the break. I know we have Harry on hold. We'll get to you, Harry, here shortly. Um, but we want to talk passports, right, Bob? Yeah, and, and Harry, uh, look, we can't take your question if your passport's expired. <laughs> so uh, make sure you've got that up to date there. But I just posed a question to you before the break. So the floor is yours. So passports. This is how many Americans interact with the State Department domestically, right? We are the federal entity that issues you your passports. Overseas, if you lose your passports, you can come into the embassy in the American Citizen Services section, and we will help get you a new one. Um, I know during COVID, there were a lot of disruptions, and that included some disruptions to passport. For those of you who are wondering, I pulled together a list of the four closest locations to Missoula to get that passport renewed. And I wanted to share them with you here now. So the Missoula Public Library, the Kent Avenue Post Office in Missoula, the Holloway Lane Post Office in Florence, and the Adams Street Post Office in Ronan. So that's where you can go. You can fill out your form. You can apply for your passport. If you have an emergency, there is some emergency travel coming up in two weeks or less. That is the Seattle Passport Agency for you. I will give you the 800 number to call if you need an emergency appointment with Seattle. That's 1-877-487-2778. And how quickly, if I have this emergency, have to drive to Seattle, and they say, oh, you're leaving tomorrow on your airplane to go to Mexico? Maybe you should stick around in Seattle, and we can get this done for you. Oh, no, I'll drive back to Missoula. Should that person expect that they're going to get their passport in time? to leave on that plane the next day, or should they have stayed in Seattle? So I think that's a great question for the people at the Seattle Passport Agency. I would assume that it is easiest for you to pick it up at the location where they're issuing it. But um, when you call that 800 number, I, that's a question I would ask gotcha. them right off the top. And if I'm going to one of the local places you mentioned, and my old passport has a picture and I was 10 years younger, <laughs> What's going to happen? I'd like to keep the younger picture, but it's not going to happen. No. So what kind of photo should I get when I go down to Kent Street uh, in terms of the post? 
Yeah, so there are specific instructions posted on travel.state.gov. It'll give you, um, there are some size requirements. Uh, you need to be looking at the camera. Uh, you can't have on a hat. So go to travel.state.gov and they can give you all the details and the information on that. Should I have my glasses on? I believe you should not have your I glasses think they on. Take them off. All right. Yeah. Now, when I'm getting a passport, is this some nefarious operation that's going to go deep into my background and uncover things that I don't want anybody to know? And then they're going to put it in the database and the database is going to go to somebody else. And next thing you know, they're knocking at my door. What are the passports about in terms of how deep and what kind of questions do they want to know about? Because it's a privilege to get a passport. So to answer your first question, if you have had a passport that was issued for 10 years and it's expired within the past five years, you can just fill out your application form and mail it in. Ooh, yeah, right? Nice. You, don't, you don't need to go in person. You don't need to deal with all that bureaucracy. If not, you can go in and make an appointment at any one of those four locations. Um, so it is, you know, it is a... It is a bureaucratic process. You have a form that you fill out and you send it in. So what kind of background checks, if any, do they do before they issue a passport? So we need to make sure that you are who you say you are, right? We need to verify identity and we need to verify that you are, in fact, a U.S. citizen uh, that should be receiving a passport. So they will check that, but there is no nefarious activity. All right. So we've got, we must have databases that say, yeah, this is Bob Seidenschwartz. This is who he is. We verified this. Great. Here's your passport. So I've never worked in passport, so I can't speak exactly okay. to the process. But, yeah, we're verifying that you are who you say you are and you do qualify for a U.S. passport. Now, having a U.S. passport, does that carry with it any special privileges, maybe simply other than the fact that you're an American and can go pretty much anywhere in the world, which may not be the case for people coming from other countries with passports? So I would have to look on travel.state.gov to know which countries require a visa before entry, but there are many countries around the world that do not require a visa before entry with a U.S. passport. Okay. Of course, every country is different, and you should definitely check before you uh, head on out to the airport mm -hmm. and get ready to board your flight. But, um, yeah. So we're generally, as Americans, not going to be on somebody's no-fly list. <laughs> You we get not to be. we get to well yes right <laughs> we get to travel and, and I only bring this up from the standpoint that you as a foreign service officer when you're going to any of the countries where you have locations these are sovereign in effect aren't they sovereign nations within a nation when you're in a U.S. embassy or at an operation that you work at or is that not the case in terms of what privileges and and such are brought with that. So when I work overseas as a diplomat, um, I, I am working under the laws of the Geneva Convention that relate to diplomats. And so the host government that has agreed to host me as a diplomat views me differently than, you know, a tourist that's coming for two weeks to stay at a resort. Sure. Um, right. And we will have different interactions with the government. Okay. We are up against our next break. Harry, sorry we went a little long with that segment, but I promise we'll get to you right after this commercial break. If you have a question like Harry and you want to visit with Kate, uh, anything that's uh, creeping up, just give us a call. Phone number is 721-1290. We would love to hear from you as well, and we'll be back right after this short timeout. 
Are you prepared for an emergency or disaster? Because it's not a matter of if, but when. Don't find yourself saying, I'll trust water bottles and a flashlight to save the day, but I'll be proved wrong. With a tornado approaching, I'll realize that I like a wheelchair accessible shelter. When the floodwaters rise, I'll be up in the attic with 20 cans of beans. It's a recipe for disaster. Let's prepare so we all have a better story to tell. Get started at ready.gov slash older adults. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. All right. Happy Tuesday. We are back here on Talkback. Uh, again, Nick Christensen here filling in for Peter Christian, who is on vacation today through the rest of this week. Uh, he will be back on Monday. We will still have Talkback shows uh, all the way the rest of this week. Um, uh, this morning, we're talking with Bob Seidenschwartz from the Montana World Affairs Council. And Kate, she's a Foreign Service Officer. Harry's been on hold for quite a while. And Harry, what's your uh, question or comment for Kate? Yeah, good morning, Kate. Uh, yeah, uh, actually, I got two questions. Uh, Bob brought up something I uh, brought in uh, about uh, administration changes. I'm wondering how uh, hard it is when they do change administration, how much, you know, all of a sudden there's, you're saying, well, before you used to let us do this, now you got to, you know, do this. I wonder how much that hard that is. And also, <clears throat> excuse me, my original question is how hard it is dealing with other foreign bureaucracies because dealing with American bureaucracy is bad enough, but I'm wondering how hard it is because each, um, each nation, I'm sure, has a different, you know, thing you got to go through. So how hard is it dealing with those foreign bureaucracies? Thanks. I think I will take your second question first on dealing with the foreign bureaucracies. Absolutely, it can be a challenge, right? Um, the countries that I've worked in, their bureaucracies do not operate in English, right? Um, and it's a different system and there are different approaches, which is one of the reasons that our local staff that I mentioned earlier in the last call, we have about 45,000 locally employed staff at our missions worldwide, right? And so they are locals and they speak the language and they grew up there. And so a lot of times they are your resource and your subject matter expert. When you say, like, I struggled really hard to pay my um, cable and internet bill in Bogota, Colombia. I found it to be a very complex, confusing process. Shocking. Um, <laughs> right? And so I really relied on individuals at the embassy, right? So they are Colombian nationals that work at the U.S. Embassy in Bogota you know, they oftentimes they are our subject matter experts. And you know, sometimes bureaucracy is just bureaucracy and it's a fact of life that we all have to live with. And I wish I had, you know, some special secret to give you to fix all those problems, but I don't. Mm. Sometimes it just takes persistence and, you know, showing up and asking the right questions. And, and Harry, can I, uh, if I may, Kate, address Harry's first question. If I go back... And I look after World War II to the present. And there are numerous articles out there talking about the transformation and changes that have taken place in foreign services, State Department, in terms of funding, training, background, interest. Just, just go down the list. These are somewhat fluid as well, would be my takeaway from this. That it isn't this stoic, it's been done this way, it always will be done this way. And there are challenges out there for these institutions in terms of attracting and keeping people, uh, salary competition, training and background. So uh, and if I'm off on this, Kate, please uh, excuse me. But this is always going to be a challenge as well, Harry, that staying on top of this and making sure that we are fully and competently staffed is critical to our operations and effectiveness across a broad spectrum 
of different issues representing the United States. And another part I wanted to add on that was, Harry, your question focused domestically. I also want to bring in the idea that in a country you're serving in overseas, there can be an administration change in that country, right. right? And they are on their own timeline, right? Like here in America, it's every four years. That's not true for every other country, right? For example, when I was in Colombia, the Colombian government signed a peace treaty with FARC, which was- Explain for, FARC, please. Yeah. So FARC was formerly classified as a terrorist organization. They were fighting the Colombian government for control of a lot of the country. And that fight had been going on since, I want to say, the 1960s, I, I would have to double check that, right? But um, at one point during my two years of service there, they signed a peace agreement with that group and a bunch of stuff changed. That was not at all part of the cycle of U.S. domestic politics, but it was a huge shift in, you know, how the government, how the Colombian government was, you know, approaching things. They signed this peace agreement, lots mm -hmm. of stuff shifted and changed. And so kind of to your broader point, you always have to be ready for change, right? Things can happen very quickly. Things can happen unexpectedly. You can be dealing with a change in the government. You could be dealing with a change, like I mentioned in Colombia with signing the peace treaty. You could be dealing with some kind of war or natural disaster. So as a foreign service officer, I feel like you always have to be flexible and, and ready for the change, whether it's coming back from headquarters in DC or it's responding to an unfolding event on the ground. Yeah, just one more thing. Uh, uh, the, is, since you've been down in Colombia, Mexico, can you uh, sort of identify some of the forces that are driving the mass exodus towards the United States at this point? If you can, I, you know, it's been a while maybe, but uh, if you have an idea of that. Right, I thank can't. You. Bye. Thanks, Thanks. Harry. I, Harry, I could speak to, uh, in Mexico, you've actually seen a shift where Mexico was the primary source of people coming across the border uh, for many, many years, and still is, but not to the percentage that you see coming out of Central America. And that's due to the corruption, climate change issues, uh, the gangs that you see down there, but also failed governments in the case of Venezuela, in the case of Haiti, which, or and now we're even seeing more migration from Europe. What's interesting in this is that we don't have some of the relationships we do with Mexico, but that we don't have with a Venezuela or a Haiti. So it sets off its own sets of complications and different kind of rules of how we deal with people coming from these countries. And of course, to come from where they are, they're coming through Mexico or up through Central America. Yeah, that is a big question that goes way beyond just me as Our a foreign scale. service officer, yeah. for yeah. sure. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, we have another caller. Um, yeah, we're not quite out of break yet. Let's uh, let's get Andy's call. Andy, what's your uh, question or comment for Kate? Uh, good morning, Kate. Uh, thank you very much for your service, first of all. Oh, thank you. Um, I was wondering about what your take is on Trump's disparaging comments about the military, uh, about military personnel, et cetera. Most recently... Nikki Haley's husband was disparaged for not being present. Um, he, Trump mocked John McCain, his injuries that he received as prisoner of war. Um, the wounded vet that he didn't, Trump didn't want uh, visible because because he looked unsettling to him. Um, and the dead military men uh, that have been killed as losers. As a military person, what? How do you? How does that make you feel? 
so that's 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 one question and then just uh another to touch on another topic that you were just discussing about uh why people might come up from uh latin america uh one of the reasons that uh the mexican people have been coming up is because our government subsidizes our corn farmers and then that corn is so sold very cheaply it to mexico because mexico doesn't subsidize their corn farmers um, so it's put a lot of business, business, uh, a lot of farmers out of business in Mexico. So we have a lot of policies like that on the books that I think we really need to look at. Um, so that's my comment, and I, I would appreciate Kate uh, hearing what your thoughts are about the disparaging comments of Trump. Okay, Andy, uh, we're going to take a quick commercial break, uh, and then we'll address your call after that. Uh, phone lines are still open. Phone number is 721-1290. If any of you want to get in the queue, we have about 20 minutes left in our show this morning, and we would love to hear from you. We'll be back right after this. We all know the sounds of stress, but you may not know that your daily stress can affect you physically. Stress can give you sleepless nights, a pounding headache, stomach pains, or worse. If you've lost a job, worry about your next meal, or having trouble making it through the day, we can help. Text STRESS to 211211 to find a solution. Unused prescription opioid pain medicines can spell trouble. They can spell risk if taken by someone they weren't prescribed for, harm if accidentally taken by a child or pet, or overdose if they're not used as directed. Safely dispose of opioids before they can hurt your family. Find a drug take-back option such as medicine drop boxes. You may find these in your community at local pharmacies or police stations. Visit www.fda.gov slash drug disposal. We are back on TalkBack. Nick Christensen here filling in for Peter Christian. As I said, he's on vacation this week. And I keep mentioning that because we'll get a million calls wondering where Peter is. So if I, if you if you started listening at 8 o'clock and you're like, Nick, we know Peter's on vacation. Peter has joined the yeah. Foreign Service. You're not too... I hope question. comes back. What's but. the maximum age that you can apply for uh, as Foreign Service employment? 57. Is okay, so... I'm too old. Sorry, Peter. Yeah. <laughs> and Peter's and too we old. No, so we're Peter's done. too old. No yeah. offense. But yeah, so, okay. so that's why I keep bringing that up. And I'm sure we'll be doing it all week. So yeah, Peter's on vacation, but he'll be back uh, next week. Right now, uh, you heard the voices of Bob Seiden Schwartz and Kate. She's a foreign service officer. And uh, we just got a couple questions from uh, Andy there. Uh, feel free to go ahead and address those, Kate. Yeah, Andy, thanks for your questions. So <clears throat> to your question on immigration, I, I don't know enough about the corn and the other things you mentioned, I will say that immigration is a complex issue and, you know, it involves federal entities beyond just the Department of State, which is what I'm here to talk about today. So I can't really speak a lot to that immigration question. Your other question on um, the comments about the military, I haven't heard those, so I'm not going to comment on them. What I will say is I'm really proud of my military service and I think it's helped me be a better foreign service officer. So I'm really appreciative of that. Thanks. And because of that work, we can sometimes say things that uh, may not quite make a lot of sense to a lot of folks, but we've got the freedom to say so. Yeah. yeah. So, Kate, let's talk a little bit about in, in terms of foreign service and opportunities for people that are listening. What would you say to them and why would you consider working in State Department or Foreign Service? 
Yeah, so I would say if you are interested, you should Google the Foreign Service Officer exam, check out the requirements and apply. I have worked with a wide variety of people with a wide variety of experiences and backgrounds. Um, we have some Foreign Service Officers that finish their formal schooling, college or graduate studies and go into the Foreign Service. Myself, I am a mid-career professional. I held two previous professional careers, one in the military, one with the American Red Cross, and then I entered the State Department. Um, I have other colleagues who have done maybe a full previous career, right? They had 20 years in the military, or they worked as an immigration lawyer, heard about the Foreign Service and thought, oh, when I'm done with this career, I'm gonna hop to my next career. So there is a wide variety of backgrounds and people and skills and life experiences. And I think that's what makes the Foreign Service very interesting and a great place to work interesting colleagues. Um, so if you are interested, if you've enjoyed traveling abroad or studying abroad, then this might be the program for you. And I would encourage you to apply. So we have ads for join the Marines, join the Army, join the Navy. Hmm. I've never seen an ad for join the Foreign Service and see the world. Yeah, a table uh, at a high school with right. all the cool gadgets. And yeah. Stuff. yeah. Um, is there a place or are we uh, pretty buttoned down in the Foreign Service so we don't do that? Are we filling enough positions in terms of what's required? Yeah, so I don't know about the kind of outreach they do. Like you mentioned with the, the tables with the cool gadgets. Mm -hmm. I don't know about that. Um, I do know that uh, we are always looking for more new good people. We're always encouraging people to apply. So put yourself out there. Do you have a program that uh, reaches out educationally to students, both at the secondary or college level? So like a career day? Um, I'm not sure about that. I know there are some certain programs that are involved with the academic world, but I did not come up through those programs, so yeah. I can't really say a lot about that. Do you have to be a certain age to be a Foreign Service officer? I know we capped poor Peter, but do you, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> when, when can you start, I guess? Ooh, I believe the minimum requirement is a high school degree. Oh. So usually in the U.S., that's what, 18, yeah, I believe? Ish, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. We're pushing that a little longer to 19 or 20 now. We, we don't want to leave the nest right now. <laughs> This question I, I wanted to ask you from the time that we had our conversation, even prior to the show, you mentioned about when you worked at the Red Cross, natural disasters. Let's let's coordinate that with the Foreign Service. When the tsunami hit several years ago in the uh, islands, Pacific area, so many people lost their lives, so much damage was done. But the ability of U.S. presence from the naval to operations on the ground was critical in getting resources and assistance to people. Can you talk a little bit about that in terms of just that background, but coordinate that with having these locations staffed and with people able to get resources immediately or very quickly to areas that their own governments in many cases could not? Yeah, so like I mentioned earlier, um, it is our job to represent the United States abroad and protect and promote you know, U.S. interests and U.S. citizens. So part of the job of any embassy around the world is to respond and assist uh, American citizens in the event of a natural disaster or an evacuation or a war or what, whatever, whatever disruptive issue might be happening there. Um, so it is often uh, an interagency 
approach in that it's not just the State Department, right? Like perhaps the Department of Defense has some assets. Perhaps there are other groups that, you know, might be engaged or involved. It really kind of depends on the country and where you're at. But there is no doubt that if Americans need assistance abroad, that embassy in that country will be coordinating the response and assisting Americans. And so, you know, everything from COVID to a natural disaster, those embassies were working to get Americans home safely and securely. Nick, do you have any thoughts or questions? Uh, we're actually up against our next break. So uh, we have a, this is just a really short one minute timeout. Um, so we'll be back. If any of our callers have any questions, now's the time. Uh, like I said, we only have about eight or nine minutes left in the show. So give us a call. Phone number is 721-1290-1800-568-5309. We would love to hear from you in this short time we have left. Yeah, the- Guys. All right, we are back on Talk Back. Nick Christensen here filling in for Peter on vacation. Uh, we have Bob Seidenschwartz in studio from the Montana World Affairs Council, as well as Kate. She's a Foreign Service Officer. We just want to thank Kate for spending so much time with us. And uh, Bob, yeah, I mean, I know that you yeah. mentioned we wanted to do a little bit of a wrap-up here, yeah. and kind of a recap for folks that maybe missed the first half of the show. Yeah, let's break this down, Kate, and bring this circle to uh, kind of full closure here. Tell us... What what do you want to be able to say to people here in Missoula and Montana about the Foreign Service, the work you do? So give us uh, give us that summary. Sure. Thanks, Bob. So first, I would say make sure your passport is valid and you are ready to travel. If not, I've given you some resources to help you try and get there. You can give those again, too, if you want. Oh, I think yeah. You for those that maybe didn't have a pen ready last time. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So if you are in the Missoula area, you can apply for your passport or renew your passport at the Missoula Public Library, the Kent Avenue Post Office in Missoula, the Holloway Lane Post Office in Florence, and the Adams Street Post Office in Ronan. If you have an emergency or travel in less than two weeks, the Seattle Passport Agency will be the agency to help you. And you can call them at 1-877-487-2778. If you had a previous passport that expired in five years or less, you can renew it by mail and you do not need to appear in person. So I always encourage people have your passport ready, valid, ready to go. If you're traveling and you want more information, travel.state.gov is our Department of State website for anyone traveling overseas. It also has information on applying for visas. If you're not an American, it has information on international adoptions. And it also gives you more information about travel and security, depending on the country that you're going to. So we always encourage that as a resource. We also have a program called STEP, which stands for the Safe Traveler Enrollment Program. So if you are traveling to a country, you can sign up and get notifications by email or text about any issues or security incidents going on in that country. So as you travel, you can be up to date and safe and aware. So we always encourage Americans to sign up for that service. Um, If you ever get in trouble overseas, the U.S. Embassy is there to help you. That can be a medical emergency, a death, an arrest, any kind of disaster or issue in the country. The the U.S. Embassy is there to assist Americans in cases like that. And finally, I would encourage anyone who's interested to find out more about the Foreign Service Officer exam. Um, That information is on the state.gov website, and I would encourage you to apply. We need good people out there representing America overseas, so sign up. 
Kate, this has uh, been our pleasure to have you here. We still have a few minutes left. So we got about five minutes. Yeah, so what would you like to say about the folks that work in foreign services and State Department? Um, I think in the world that we kind of exist in right now, we have a dim view sometimes or a jaundiced eye towards certain governmental institutions. Uh, what has been your experience with these people? So I really like and appreciate all the colleagues I've worked with. Um, you know, I have personally in Mexico twice and in Colombia once worked um, crisis responses in Mexico twice when I was there, hurricanes threatened to make landfall. So I worked on a crisis response mm -hmm. team. And when I was in Colombia, I got flown to the U.S. Virgin Islands because there was in 2017, there were a series of hurricanes that came through and just devastated the place. Um, and I went to those locations and, you know, I worked with not only our local national staff, but other foreign service officers. And we put in really long, hard hours to try and help Americans, whether that was get them emergency passports, help them coordinate on getting out of the country, whatever people needed, we were there to try and help them. So I'm very proud of the work that my colleagues do. Um, and it's not always easy living abroad and leaving behind your family. I have missed plenty of birthdays, holidays, right. things like that. Um, but it's really important work, right? There are some things that you have to be in a country in person to be doing. And so that is the work that we do. And that's why we're overseas. That's why I have a friend who just finished up two years of Japanese language training. So she could be proficient enough in that language to go and represent U.S. interests in Japan. So it's hard work and people are out there doing it every day. And what would you say to the many people that do travel from the United States to other countries? We're going there for our purposes, vacation, whatever the case may be. But we also are representatives of the U.S. of A. Anything that you've learned or observed that you would say, let me just give you a few little kind of just clues as to how to act, what to be thinking about, regardless whether you're in developing countries or the developing world countries. I think you just need to be aware and be a good citizen, right? Um, it, it's always a good idea to be prepared. It's always a good idea to have a copy of your passport. It's always a good idea to share your travel plans with a friend or loved one. Um, so, you know, you just, just like you would for any trip anywhere else, you, you should have a plan. You should be prepared. You should have a backup. Do we uh, take maybe a few things for granted in thinking that services and structure that exists in the United States is automatically going to be someplace else that we're going. And I know there's a wide range. Yes, right. Yeah, so um, some places you go, no one will speak English. And so you have to be prepared to navigate that if you need to. Um, and the laws that apply to you in a foreign country are those laws of the foreign country. Just because it's legal or illegal in America doesn't, doesn't translate into that other country. So you should be aware and you should engage appropriately. As far as cultural engagement, any words of advice? As you mentioned, you're going to a foreign country, can be radically different. How important from your experience is it that we prepare ourselves a little bit ahead of time to understand some of the rules of the road? Yeah, I think it's, it's very important. I like to just kind of keep an open mind and observe when I first show up to see, you know, what are people doing? How do people interact with each other? Is this a culture of like, they talk close to each other. It's more of a two foot distance standoff. And I will tell you, 
one of my favorite things to do when traveling is to take a local cooking class because I feel like mm. I learn a lot of interesting vocabulary. I always learn some new technique about cooking and I feel like it's a really interesting entry into that culture. And a lot of times as, like, as you're preparing the food or cooking or sharing information, it's just a really laid back, easy way to do like a quick informal cultural exchange and learn something. And you usually get delicious food at the end of it, so it's a win. <laughs> well, a win. <laughs> hey, f food is love. It's welcoming. It, it connects us automatically. So uh, great idea. Any other little tips for us as we're traveling? Oh, gosh, I think that's it. Great, that's yeah, it, we're, we got under a minute here. So if, if anyone's interested, do you want to give that website again where people can learn more? Yeah, so travel.state.gov is our website that has everything for international travel, including um, alerts and recommendations. You can sign up for our Safe Traveler Enrollment Program um, and find out more information about passports. Awesome. Kate, Kate this, this has yep. been great. Uh, Bob, as always, thank you. We'll see you, obviously, on Thursday. Uh, and Kate, again, thank you for your service. She's a Foreign Service Officer. Thanks to all our callers that called in today. Uh, I will be back tomorrow, and it'll be me and our friend and resident CPA, Walt Carroll, for a full two hours. I know that everyone's kind of starting to file their taxes, so get those tax questions ready for Walt. Uh, he'll have his famous stack of stuff, but we want to hear from you, and we'll uh, talk to you tomorrow.